Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Uh, great to be here today, although uh, my normal uh, co-host, Ward Carroll, is not with us today. He's busy with some other things, but uh, we've got a great guest on the line all the way from Brisbane, Australia. Our guest today is Major General Mick Ryan, uh, Australian Army, uh, Commander of the Royal uh, Australian Defense College in Canberra. And he's the author of a Naval Institute press book called War Transformed, the Future of 21st Century Great Power Competition and Conflict. Just came out in uh, February of this year. I've just finished reading it. It is a phenomenal book. Uh, General Ryan, it's great to have you on the show. It's good to be with you, Bill. Uh, I'm no longer the commander of the college. I, I retired in February. Oh, you retired. When the book came out, you retired. Gotcha. Gotcha. Within two um, weeks. That, that was my... Uh, that was my high point, and it was all downhill after the book came out. Well, it is a it, it's a fantastic book that helps uh, frame so many things that are happening today, uh, both in terms of great power competition, and our readers and listeners will uh, recognize a lot of the terms and a lot of uh, you know just in in our magazine and proceedings, you know, there's just been so much discussion over the last, you know, four or five years that I've been here on things, you know, the future of conflict, the technology aspect of it, where, you know, great power competition, um, the role of alliances in the world. Uh, I mean, so many of these things come out in your book in, in very coherent ways that made me, a lot of lights kind of went on in my head as I went, ah, that's the better way to think about this. This is, that's a, that's a really powerful lens. So, um, I think there's a tendency when one talks about the future of warfare to just gravitate towards technology. I know that that's true for me. Oftentimes, I just want to go and think about cyber, AI, machine learning, hypersonic space, electric weapons. I mean, all of these things have been in the news, you know, constantly. Um, but there's a huge human element that is so critical, and it comes out in your book, I think, so well. Um, because much of your book is about people and organizations and how the best ones adapt uh, to the change that's happening in the world and bring that adaptation and bring those new technologies and adapt them into the military better than the adversary. So could I just ask you to talk about that before we start talking about, you know, some of the futuristic things that, you know, people will want to gravitate towards? Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that. Um, technology um, is useful and it helps provide an edge, but it is ultimately people who win wars, not technologies. And it's um, the leadership of people, it's the war fighting ideas of people, it's the, the old and new organisational constructs from people that win wars. And there's no better case study of that than what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, Russia went into this war bigger, uh, with better technology, largely, um, and with new ideas that I've even examined in the book about war fighting that many people thought uh, were potentially very clever. Uh, we've seen, however, that the Ukrainians, much smaller, have outthought and outfought uh, the bigger more technologically advanced, at least in theory, uh, Russian military. Um, so I think that final chapter where I talk about people really is the core of my hypothesis on generating advantage for military institutions in the 21st century. 
Yeah, that, that that's such a great point, and uh, you know, I think you're you're spot on. You know, your book came out in February, just as this uh, war was kicking off, right? And so many surprises uh, for the world, right? I think not only what Putin did, but then. I think Putin's probably been extremely surprised by just how badly it's gone for him right. and for his military. Uh, it, 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 it's, you know, it's kind of shocking in so many different ways. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about how your book starts. So I, I, this was one of the th those things that made me think. And then I wanted to ask you, why did you start where you did? Because it starts off with a vignette that's a um, 2020 June uh, up in the Himalayas on the, the border between India and China, uh, Oxai Chin, this is contested area, and a skirmish happens. And it's brutal, right? Um, and I'm just curious why you chose that skirmish to start your book as, a, as an example of war in the 21st century. Oh, well, I did that because war has many forms and it's not all going to be about high-tech face-offs in the Western Pacific. Um, I did it because it was a surprising thing. I mean, it was a level of brutality and violence in that particular theatre that had not been seen for a very long time. Um, I did it because um, the Chinese attacked the Indians with baseball bats, um, nail-studded clubs, rocks and other things, and literally threw Indian soldiers and their officers to their deaths in very deep ravines. So it showed also the nature of our principal adversary in the 21st century China and the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army. We should have no misconceptions or doubts about their brutality and their hatred for those they fight and the violence that they are more than comfortable visiting on those uh, who oppose them in the future. That's a, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now that I've, now that I hear you say why you chose that example, it, it's uh, in many ways a perfect example to start the book. Uh, for our listeners uh, who are watching this live on, uh, on our uh, YouTube channel, um, please join in with the chat. Uh, if you've got questions that we could pose uh, to General Ryan, please uh, you know type them in. Our uh, our moderator Heather will uh, will pick the best uh, questions and put them up on screen. Uh, and until we get some good questions from the audience, um, you know I I've got a couple more that I wanted to ask. Um, we already talked a little bit about surprise. Uh, you know you mentioned that 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 the Chinese attack uh, and Oxai Chin was uh, was surprising for many reasons. So what's happening in in Put in uh, in Ukraine is uh, is full of surprises. You know, you go back um, throughout the history of warfare. Um, you know, I, I was in the Pentagon on 9-11 that that surprised the heck out of us that day. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, surprise is an element of warfare. Um, and back to your point about the human element of warfare being so important. Um, you know, what do how do militaries, successful militaries and successful military leaders prepare for surprise and prepare not to be overwhelmed by surprise in ways that allow them to uh, prevail in war? Well, the first thing is to understand that it's always going to happen. Uh, this is why a good understanding of military history is so important for military leaders. 
that they should appreciate they will never, ever get away from military surprise, whether it's being surprised or them trying to surprise an adversary. So from that means that you need to have a training and education regime that prepares people for surprise. Um, training at all levels should incorporate our people being surprised so they know what it's like, so they'll do everything they can to prevent it, but so essentially they understand that it is normal, that it is not abnormal on the battlefield. And if you get to that point, then you might get to the next point, which is how do you fight through the shock that is generated by surprise? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's why you surprise people. It's not just about the gotcha moment, it's about the shock that surprise causes in an adversary. And it's in that moment or that time of shock where the real killing occurs, where you really can decisively change a battle, a campaign, or even a war. So what we need to do is to prepare our people to fight through that shock as quickly as they possibly can, but also adapt through that shock so they're not surprised in the same way again. And that's why you know adaptation is a really important part of the book, but also this understanding surprise and shock and fighting through it is an essential prerequisite for leaders. So leaders must understand it and they must be able to lead their people through this. Uh, you make a great point. I, I'm reminded, you know, I, I said a minute ago, 9-11, I was in the Pentagon and that was a surprise to us. Uh, but to your point about preparing for it, being ready for it, training your, your teams for what happens when something bad happens. Um, you know, the, the team I was on, we we had prepared for th not pr that particular thing, but we'd prepared for disasters. We prepared for, um, you know, eventualities that uh, that snuck up on us. Uh, we prepared for a natural disaster. Um, you know, if we had to evacuate the Pentagon and relocate to another place, we were ready for that so that we, we had a plan in place. We knew what team was going to go where and when and how they were going to get there. And so when we had to use essentially a backup command and control facility that day, we knew how to do it we'd, and we'd exercised it. So that's a that's a, a poignant example of, I think, of what you're saying. Um, uh, a lot of your book, you know, the, the strategic background is about, you know, great power competition and what's happening between the U.S. and uh, and our allies and and China these days and the difference between now and the Cold War. And um, uh, there's a lot about, you mentioned, uh, uh, you talk a lot about um, all elements of national power, not just the military power. Uh, but I, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about great power competition, how you think about it, how your, you know, the Australian Defense College was um, you know, considering great power competition and and what that meant for, uh, for really for any nation involved in it, but you know, for perhaps for Australia, for the Australian military, um, how how do we how do we think about great power competition today in a way that maybe is different from you know thirty forty years ago? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the way we think about it is firstly understand how. Um, great power competition has played out in the past. There's as many continuities uh, from previous eras with the current Cold War that we seem to be in with China, that China has foisted upon us. I mean, we didn't generate this. This is all the Chinese. Um, so there's a lot of things that are the same. 
um, the elements of technological competition, the elements of economic competition and connectivity uh, have very strong parallels in the early, early 20th century in particular. Um, the information elements have very strong parallels from the Cold War with the Soviet Union and, and the military competition with the Warsaw Pact. So there's a lot of things we can learn from that about how people responded to those challenges uh, at the political, at the uh, informational, diplomatic, economic and military levels. But at the same time, there are some different aspects of this. Uh, I guess the principal difference is that uh, the United States has never come up against a competitor as large or as wealthy or as technologically sophisticated as the Chinese. Now, the technological sophistication, I think what we've seen in the Russo-Ukraine war should cause us to relook at our understanding of Chinese technological sophistication and military capability. Um, you know, I'm not quite convinced they're as big and strong as they would like to bluff us into thinking. So, you know, when we think about great power competition, there's a lot of continuities and there's some new things. And the real art is in understanding what is, what's in each barrel there and how we respond to them. And then you use those findings uh, for your military strategy, your economic strategies, your informational uh, strategies, um, influence strategies, um, as you move forward over the coming years and indeed decades of this competition with China. Um, as, as you think about that, you know, the, the ongoing strategy, the ongoing struggle and competition, um, where, where do you think it's going well for the West uh, and where do you think it's not going so well? Um, Actually, I think the West is doing better than it gives itself credit for. Um, and the reason I say that is, unlike China, we can criticise ourselves. <laughs> we can criticise our leaders. We can change our leaders if they're not doing well or if they're incompetent or if it's just time for a change. So we are remarkably um, self-reflective. Uh, we are remarkable at looking at ourselves and critiquing ourselves. And this is, in many respects, the superpower of democracies. It's something that is entirely lacking in Russia at the moment. Mm. It's certainly lacking in President Xi's China. I mean, he's literally purged anyone with any ideas that are slightly different from his. So that's the superpower of the West. Um, and it actually allows us maybe not to do things as quickly or change things as quickly as the Chinese, but it all but it does allow us to make qual higher quality adaptations to military, economic, informational things than the Chinese will be able to make simply because we're able to explore a much, much wider diversity of ideas and opinions than the CCP will ever allow. That's a great point. I've, I've been reading a lot about what's happening in, um, you know, with Ukraine and the, and the feedback mechanisms that are lacking you know, for for Russia, and that the the entire information um, flow has been set up really to support him, uh, rather than to give him the truth, right? To support his version of the truth, rather than to give him, you know, the 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 harsh truth that would allow the you know rapid change of tactics or strategy. And 
It's interesting. Um, we got a question from uh, Antonio Bricio, who's uh, one of our uh, uh, frequent guests. He says, General Ryan, we've seen that the lack of combat readiness in the Russian troops in the recent Ukrainian conflict has played a major role in the development of the conflict. How does the PLA compare? Well, this is always the great mystery at the start of every war, right? Um, you can you can look at the concepts, you can look at the organisations, you can look at training exercises, you can do psychological profiles of leaders, but how it comes together on the day against an adversary who's also thinking and shooting at them is always one of the great mysteries on the first day of a war. Um, and I, you know, for me, this is why Sir Michael Howard's work on, it's not so much getting it right the day before, but you've got to be able to get it right the day after as you change and adapt was his essential um, idea about good military institutions. So the Russians went into this obviously as a large conventional army that was used to, um, well, not having anyone really fight hard against them. They haven't had that since the Second World War. Um, they're an army that is professionalising, but nowhere close to the professional journey that those in the West have gone down over the last, well, at least since the end of the Cold War, but really since the early 1800s. Um, and they're an army whose ethos, as we've seen, has actually not changed a lot from the one that pillaged and raped its way across Eastern Europe into Berlin at, this, at the end of the Second World War. It's clearly led by men who think nothing of targeting civilians, engaging in large-scale destruction, um, uh, torture, uh, murder, these kind of things. So it's an institution whose professional ethos is almost 180 degrees that from Western military institutions. Um, and this makes it a much less effective military organisation. It might be an effective torture and murder club, but it makes it a far less effective uh, military institution. So, you know, we look at that in Russia and you go, well, are there parallels with the PLA, which remember is not the army of China. It is the army of the Chinese Communist Party. Makes it a very different thing because ultimately its purpose is to defend the regime of the Chinese Communist Party, which is authoritarian. It allows no other party to exist that can challenge it. And as we've seen throughout the history of the CCP, um, the PLA has done everything in its power to suppress Chinese and anyone else who threatens that power. Um, my sense is that makes it a less effective military institution. Um, they don't have a lot of combat experience. They've written a lot of interesting concepts. They do some highly scripted exercises. My sense is that that lack of deep combat expertise that you see in the US Navy, for example, um, will not play out well for the Chinese in the first 24 hours of the next war with them. Great question. Great, great answer, sir. Um, we've got another question from uh, Kyle Craig, who uh, writes for Proceedings a lot. Uh, how do you think the future of warfare informs what should be a theory of victory or strategy against China? And do you think the USN and uh, our Royal Australian Navy's fleet structure is built to support that strategy? Hmm. Um, the, the theory of victory has got to start from the top at the political level. Um, the way we win, the way we are winning, 
in my view, is maintain healthy democratic societies where freedom of um, expression, freedom of religion uh, are prized and protected and protected wherever they occur. Um, and they should set an example to sit any citizen in the world of what they can aspire to, which is why the Chinese hate Taiwan, right? They hate Taiwan because it provides an example of how Chinese people can live that's different to the authoritarian regime that the CCP wants to um, keep, you know, keep in China in perpetuity. So that's the first part of a theory of victory. The second bit is um, obviously, you know, the, the diplomatic and informational elements, but they then need to be melded with the military. Now, in the Western Pacific, there's a lot of water. Um, so there's obviously need for maritime strategies, but there's also a lot of air and there's also a lot of space and there's also a lot of green bits called land. So we need to be careful not to overinvest in one domain at the cost of the others, because at the end of the day, um, whilst, you know, my hope and my belief is the US Navy will actually sink the PLA Navy in the first 48 hours of whatever comes next. Um, I hope that happens, but if it doesn't, we need to be able to fight everywhere else at the same time. So it's about balance and it's about selecting, you know, what are the key areas where we really need to not just defeat the PLA, but defeat them in a way that they know they're defeated, but won't then resort to the use of nuclear weapons. It's a really difficult um, calculus to get right. Um, but to be quite frank, and I know uh, you beat yourselves up a lot. I mean, there's a reason why the United States is a superpower, and it's because, you know, at its best, it is the best at thinking about these kind of problems and coming up with solutions to them. So your question, or, or Kyle's question and your answer to it reminded me of uh, one of the many things I highlighted in your book. I, I, I don't often read books with highlighter in hand, but yours is one that I did. Um, and And it, this is in your in your one of your conclusions, but you say we must understand how others see war and competition. I just want to read a little bit. If Americans and their allies confront an adversary with a vastly broader cultural understanding of conflict, then two equally dangerous things can arise. First, we can be engaged in conflict with an adversary who considers themselves to be at war with us, and yet we don't realize that fact. Or second, we can be engaged in activities that seem innocuous or peaceful to us uh, that our adversaries can perceive as acts of war and respond accordingly. And that's a quote from um, Kil David Kilcullen. David yeah. Kilcullen, yeah. David Kilcullen. Um, and I, I, when I read that the other night, I thought, oh, that's so so key, right? Is you got to understand the game that you're playing and yeah. you got to understand how your adversary sees what you're doing and and, and vice versa. So that ability to understand the adversary, to get inside his his or her head, um, and then to be able to translate what they're thinking to our leaders at the same time, right, is is so key. Um, we got a question from Air Force Max. What's the best way to discredit Vladimir Putin with his supporters and apologists? Um, I'm not sure who comedian Lee, Lee Camp is, but essentially, how do how do we discredit Vladimir Putin? Yeah, sorry, I don't know who Lee Camp is either, but um, you know, Putin obviously is already 
uh, discredited throughout Europe and, and the Western world, but not so much in a lot of other areas. Right. I mean, uh, he's at home. It looks like there's about 70 to 80 percent support for the war. Um, you know, and a lot of people are, are unwilling to accept that, but there is wide support for this war in Russia. Um, and in the information space, you're seeing China um, basically copy Russian messages and amplify them. You're seeing people in India do exactly the same, and you're also seeing it occur in places such as Africa. So we shouldn't assume that just because... Uh, Ukraine is a democracy that we're helping defend itself and what it's doing is right. We shouldn't assume we've won the information fight. Um, we've underinvested in this just as we've underinvested in counter-autonomy systems over the last couple of decades, but we've done it before. You know, once again, this is part of learning from what's gone before us. Uh, during the Cold War, the United States, Britain and others had very robust but also very sophisticated information campaigns to influence particularly the countries on the periphery of the Soviet Union and to show them what the Soviets were really like and show them the benefits of a free and democratic society. We need to do that again in a 21st century construct. We haven't even really tried in the last 20 years. It's only in the last year or so we've really thought about it. Um, and Ukraine, I think, is a bit of a watershed moment for some of these social media companies where they're starting to realise, oh, these authoritarian regimes, we might have been making money from them, but they're actually really bad. And maybe we might see them get off the fence and start helping for once in showing off the West and all its virtues. So, um, you know, I think that's going to be a really important part is learning from the past, getting social media companies off the fence, and then understanding who we're trying to influence and with what messages. Well, one of the things that I've been just amazed uh, to watch is the fact that uh, the Russians have not effectively shut down the ability of the Ukrainians to communicate with the outside world. So, I mean, it, it, you know, the, what the Russian soldiers are doing is discrediting themselves and, and Vladimir Putin and the Russians, at least to the outside world. Right. But it's amazing to me that the that the Russians haven't shut down the internet, haven't shut down social media, haven't shut down the ability of uh, of Ukrainians to take pictures of what they see and, and broadcast yeah. them to the world, right? Um, I mean, this is, it's been really important, actually. There's an Australian university that I know is um, doing work with Ukraine on this, and they have a Twitter feed that shows a live status update of Ukrainian internet availability. And for the whole war, it's been between 70 and 90%, which... Amazing. It's absolutely stunning when you think about it, but it also shows Ukrainians have prepared well. They've war-gamed out a lot of scenarios. They've invested in uh, sovereign resilience uh, in a way that maybe some of us have not. Uh, but you're right. Uh, keeping that communications network to transmit images, video, presidential speeches within their country and to the world has been a really, really important part of the Ukrainian strategy. Agreed. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about the nature of war versus the character of war. Uh, your book talks about this in a, in a number of places. Uh, you start with it. You also end with it. It's one of your conclusions or your your epilogue. Um, you know, so the the nature of war, uh, immutable, ha has not you know for for many people uh, you know the the idea is that the nature of war doesn't change. It's a it's a violent political struggle to to. Uh, uh, you, you know, give a, a bumper sticker 
uh, a violent political struggle of will between two opponents, um, whereas the character of war is how is war conducted, that changes uh, over time with technology, it changes with culture, it changes with military culture. Um, so talk about that a little bit, because um, we've got, I, I saw a lot of um, parallels between your book and an article that we've got coming in the May issue of Proceedings by a guy named Jerry Roncolato, uh, a, a longtime Proceedings author writing for this thing called the American Sea Power Project. And Jerry is, the, the, the title of his article is the, the Character of War is Constantly Chaining, Changing. So both of you actually um, referenced Frank Hoffman uh, on, on this particular topic. So it was, it was neat to read your book and also read Jerry's article and compare your, your footnotes and your endnotes, which by the way, very impressive for our listeners. Uh, if you read General Ryan's book, it's a fantastic book. But one of the things that will just be a, a treasure for you is all the the reference material that you that you cite. I mean, it's almost a third of the pages of the book are the references and the footnotes and the uh, you know the erot all of that stuff is just really fascinating. So, um, but anyway, so, so to you, uh, character nature versus uh, the character of war. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I put all those references in so I seem at least as well read as General Mattis, <laughs> um, but. You know, it's, it's an important uh, concept or an important construct for people to understand. You know, and it goes obviously back to uh, Karl von Clausewitz. And I think I say in the book, I, I don't ever pretend to approach his greatness in thinking. Uh, but, you know, the character war, as you describe, is about how war evolves in terrain, in technology, in ideas, in organisations and objectives. Um, and that's always changing. It's every day it's changing. You know, we've seen today that, um, you know, the US with its latest aid packages uh, sending the Ukrainians a brand new uh, lethal drone system that we didn't know anything about. So every day there's little steps in every domain about how it changes and new organisations are set up and these kind of things. But at its heart, war hasn't changed since the first two tribes of cavemen decided to fight each other over the over a favourite cave or a favourite hunting ground. I mean, it's about political outcomes, even if those political outcomes are pretty base or pretty simple. And it's about two groups of humans opposing each other and using violence and, and other means to achieve those political outcomes. Now, why it's a relevant topic now is because we're seeing, for the first time in human history, new technologies that aren't just used by humans, but with which humans might truly team for the first time. It's a very different construct. You know, flying a plane, driving a ship or a tank is not the same as partnering with them when the machine is able to demonstrate elements that approximate human cognition. And then if we talk about uh, artificial intelligence, these aren't thinking machines, but they are machines that approximate many, many elements of human cognition. So for some people, that means the essential nature of war is changing because of these thinking machines. I disagree with that, and I say that in the book, because these machines don't understand context. These machines generally do not make big decisions about war. Um, they make decisions about shooting down a missile, whether it's a Patriot or whether it's a Sea Whiz system on a US Navy or an Australian Navy ship. 
but they aren't making the political decisions, they aren't making the grand strategic decisions, and they're not commanding forces. So, as I say in the epilogue, the nature of war is not changing while humans make the big decisions about war, regardless of how many machines, how many algorithms, how many advanced technologies are introduced. I tend to agree with you, sir. Um, we have a question from uh, Andrew Hogler, uh, which is specifically about the China Solomon Islands security deal, which has been in the news just you know this this week. Yep. Um, but I, but I, it it's it's a great example of uh, the, the the importance of alliances and partnerships and how those constantly evolve and and. The, uh, the battle for influence in a theater or in a, a region of the world or even globally, right? So talk a little bit about, uh, particularly for an Australian, you're much closer to the Solomon Islands than, than most Americans will ever get. Uh, talk about how that is uh, being viewed in, in Australia, how you view it, and then maybe more uh, broadly about uh, the, the importance of alliances and partnerships. Hmm. Yeah, I guess for a bit of context, Solomon's obviously is the location of Guadalcanal, which uh, the U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps know very well. Um, 7,000 U.S. Marines and, and Navy personnel died there during the Second World War to seize it back from the Japanese. Uh, another 10 or 15,000 more were wounded in action there. And they did that because uh, part of U.S. strategy in the Pacific was to ensure the lines of communication between Australia and the United States. Now, that theory hasn't changed in the 21st century. Um, it is an important part of ge um, uh, strategic geography in the South Pacific. Uh, and to be quite frank, it is a massive strategic failure on behalf of Australia to have so manifestly overlooked a country that was geographically so important and underinvested in the relationship. Now, we've had peacekeeping troops there. We've supported the government last year when it looked like it fell. And even then, the Chinese were able to insert themselves, uh, you know, probably not through above board means, but from uh, means that you wouldn't use in a democratically elected government. Um, so this is a profound problem for our country, but also for the alliance. The Americans relied on us to look after our backyard. We clearly haven't here. Um, and it's going to be very difficult now to address what is probably the most profound strategic challenge in our region since the Second World War. Now, a Chinese base in the Solomon Islands, which will be the outcome of this agreement, um, will not actually help anyone except the Chinese. It won't help the Solomon Islands, it won't help Australia, it won't help anyone in the South Pacific. Unfortunately, the only way we're probably going to see it go is allow the Solomon Islanders to experience what the Chinese are really like and uh, they will find they are very unpleasant people to deal with um, and they treat people terribly, even their own people, let alone foreigners. So, you know, this is, this is a, it's hard to overstate what a strategic disaster this agreement this week is. Now, it is not a surprise. This has been coming for a decade um, and that makes the, um, strategic negligence involved here all the worse that's strong words uh the way, the way you describe that sir I, I i personally agree uh yeah i think it's a i think it's a terrible development geostrategically uh but i i to your point about the people of the solomon's islands are going to experience 
what it's like to deal with the Chinese. As many of our readers know, uh, what happens when the Chinese, with a lot of these uh, Belt and Road Initiative projects that the Chinese have, have done throughout uh, the Indo-Pacific and into Africa, is uh, you know, they, they asked the country, you know, how would you like to have a, a, a big port facility? And then they, um, they end up borrowing money to pay the Chinese to build it with Chinese equipment, Chinese made components by Chinese laborers who then come into their country and set up, you know, Chinatowns. And so it didn't, doesn't result in, in jobs for the local populace. It doesn't stimulate the local economy, but somehow, you know, Sri Lanka becomes uh, liable to to repay the debt for Hamban Toda. Uh, you know, you you pick the countries in the Middle East and and in Africa that have had similar things happen to them. So, the the Chinese development model is not good for um, the 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 countries that are being developed, quote unquote. I completely agree with you. Um, so, uh, sadly, we are we are running a little bit short on time here. I wanted to ask you just to talk a, a, maybe. There's seven or eight really powerful conclusions in your book. We don't have time for all of them, but um, a couple of them, uh, you know, just are, are salient in my mind. Um, and you've you've hit on these a little bit, um, but you make the point that war and competition will remain human preoccupations. That is one of your conclusions. That you know, th this is 21st century. There's a lot of technology, but war and competition war and competition, great power competition, are still going to be human things, human preoccupations. Um, and then you also bring out the fact that um, uh, future military power is not just about militaries. It's about much more than military power. Uh, and then at, at one of the other conclusions, and, I, and I'll ask you just to wrap these up or put them together, tie a bow on it. Um, but people are at the heart of all military advantage. That's another one of your conclusions. And um, just talk about those three, th those three conclusions for a minute, if you will. Yeah, when the book came out in February, um, I still think there were people who thought, you know, war is, is part of the future of humanity who would challenge that and thought, oh, you're just a military guy trying to sell a book. Um, and there are still a lot of people out there, but not as many as there were um, before 24 February and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, war has always been part of human existence. There's 5,000 years of recorded history of warfare. It's just what humans do. And until our essential nature changes, and there's no evidence of that, are we going to keep fighting? And there's still going to be certain types of leaders who think, um, fighting is the way to achieve their objectives. Um, the human aspect of warfare is central. Humans make all the decisions. Humans do all the fighting. Humans do all the dying. Humans have all the stake stakes in war. So it is humans um, who dominate um, warfare. And we can talk about all the domains we want, um, but at the end of the day, humans are the central aspect of warfare and investing in them through training, through education, through great leadership, through giving them the right purpose, as we've seen uh, contrasted between the Ukrainians and the Russians just in the last two months, is everything in warfare. It is critical. It is an essential element of military institutions in democracies and it is key to generating military advantage in the 21st century. 
Well put, sir. Well put. Well, we are uh, sadly out of time. I could continue this conversation over uh, over a beer with you, and I hope to have the, the chance to do that. Me too. Gonna, yeah, I'm going to tell uh, our our CEO and and others because uh, we put a lot we put together a lot of um, events and conferences, and I think that you would plug in so well to a number of the the conferences that we are starting to think about for the next year. Uh, so don't be surprised if you get a, an invitation to come to a Naval Institute event here in Annapolis or in San Diego, uh, you know, in the next six months to a year. Uh, our guest for our, our listeners and viewers, our guest has been uh, Mick Ryan, Major General, Australian Army, retired, uh, former commander of the Australian Defense College in Canberra. His book is uh, fresh out from the Naval Institute Press called War Transformed, the Future of 21st Century Great Power Competition and conflict. Sir, it's been great to have you on the show. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Bill. It's been an honor to be with you, and I look forward to getting back over to the United States. Great to have you. Uh, and for our audience, thank you for your questions. And if you are a new listener or a new viewer uh, to the Proceedings podcast, the podcast, the show is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Uh, so the support of our members uh, under girds everything that we do at the Naval Institute, and we would uh, invite you to become a member. Go to usni.org and join. Uh, you'll be part of uh, nearly 150 years of providing an open forum for candid discussions about military and global affairs and the, sea f the, uh, the, the future of the sea services, the United States, and our allies and partners. Thank you for tuning in today, and we'll catch you next week.